underworld mysticism is more that uh, when you've been unmade and experienced that kind of capital N nothing, uh, and then start to see that nothing in everything else, right? Comparable to my epistemological nihilism. Uh, when you see that, then there comes, even though there's no logical reason why it should be this way, what starts to come from that unmaking is compassion and love, right? You know, there's no, you can't defend it logically why that would necessarily create that, but the, the nothing in everything starts to be this uh, total connection and this compassion and stuff. Uh, Welcome to Faith and What Resonates. I'm Gail Gallagher, professional musician and lifelong seeker. I was raised both Catholic and Unitarian Universalist at the same time, and as I grew up sorting out my personal theology, I found meaning in music and theater. On this show, I interview people from different backgrounds about the ways they find meaning in the world as we explore the magic of the things that resonate. My guest today is James Perrin. James is a PhD student in mythological studies with a deep love of the music of corn. In this conversation, we dive deep into corn's discography, themes of underworld journeys, the goddess Kali, and other points in between. This episode is a bit heavier than previous episodes. We talk about themes of trauma, sexual abuse, and being metaphorically ripped apart. We do also bring the conversation back to the light of what happens after we work through the dark stuff. But still, heads up, there will be dark stuff. So if you're not feeling a conversation that dives deep on the metaphorical underworld journey, you can totally sit this one out. Also, there are swears if that's the thing you need a heads up for. Anyway, here is our conversation. All right, we are here with James Perrin on the Zoom. Uh, and uh, James, go ahead and tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, I'm James Perrin. Uh, I'm a PhD student in uh, a program uh, about mythological studies and with an em emphasis in depth psychology, uh, which means that I'm reading all of the cool, ancient, you know, awesome stories and doing both socio-literary and uh, psychological, in, you know, looks at them. It's pretty much the coolest thing I've ever done. Actually, my, I'm going to be defending my dissertation at, at the end of this month. So that's part a big part of where I'm coming from. When you say uh, socio-literary and uh, psychological, so that means you're looking at like mythology within the, the scope of larger frameworks and all that good PhD stuff? Yeah, and it's social context and the literary conventions that were going around and what the cultural this, that, and the other was that, it, that the text was created in to look at what it would have meant to people at the time and to get a better sense of what uh, the authors, which usually is a, com a community, what they were wrestling with and, and doing in the myth. Cool. That's super cool. Um, and so, uh, spoilers audience, uh, as you saw in the title, we're going to talk about the music of corn today. But before we get into that, um, tell the audience a little bit about 
just the broad strokes of your uh, faith journey, like how it started, how it's going, that kind of thing. So I was raised Lutheran and am very grateful for the upbringing and the, and the I'm very grateful for, for that. And it, it's never left me. That's one of the important things to keep in mind when I describe this journey is that each stage still contains the previous ones. But raised Lutheran, I was headed towards the ministry with them and was being uh, groomed for it in a positive sense, meaning that I just, I kept walking towards these doors that were locked and then people kept opening them for me. So I was doing that and uh, left them in the middle of undergrad and became sort of a denominational refugee uh, and was really drowning in epistemological nihilism. The From there, I started some uh, animist spirit work a little bit. I avoid the term shaman because it's post-colonial or colonial mm-hmm. bullshit problems. And and then eventually was when when people were starting to love my heart back on fire, you know, because it had, I was just ashes at that point. Uh, I was given this image to think about over and over again, which was the image of Kali. And that pushed me over the edge and set me free in wonderful ways uh, and pushed me into mysticism generally. So I'm sort of ending up at this place where uh, of epistemological nihilism and mysticism and how those are intertwined and kind of the same thing. So epistemology is uh, is the framework in a given in whatever context uh, of discerning how you know things. It's it's the rules behind knowledge and what counts as knowledge. So it, it's uh, on the one hand, it's just sort of the framework that you're looking at the universe with. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, it's all epistemologies require uh, ignoring huge amounts of info that's coming to us and focusing on other stuff and saying that we're finding truth there. So for a quick example, the scientific method is practicing a very rigid epistemology, right, of experimentation and uh, empirical evidence only, only looking at physical, physically measurable things, right, that only only the data from that constitutes truth. And there are a bunch of other epistemologies around. So what you're defining is that um, it's this idea that you want to have clear data on the things as you make sense of them and you feel like you can't. So what is the point? I am a pile of sad. Is that is that what that no. term means? So epistemology isn't necessarily a data-driven kind of a thing. Uh, that's just okay. looking at it from a specifically uh, recent way of looking at things. But basically it's that uh, all of these epistemologies are socially constructed, right? They're, they're arrived through, through the continuous interactions between a bajillion people in a context uh, that sort of creates this framework or this foundation on which the rest of the universe is built, you know, the understanding of the universe. So there are a bunch of others that are non-data. The, by epistemological nihilism, I mean that in investigating all of these epistemologies and how they are socially created, then there's this realization that we don't actually have any access to uh, unfiltered or unadulterated truth, that we're always going to be looking at it through some sort of cultural lens. And so we can't actually know, it's not possible to know the thing in itself kind of ever. Because even if a very exactly true thing presented itself to us, there would still be us having to interpret it and receive and, you know, and mm-hmm. understand the thing. So there's always going to be a barrier. Uh, and 
it's simultaneously a position of uh, a giant pile of sad, like you said, you know, realizing, oh my God, nothing can be known, right? All that exists is this socially constructed lens, you know, or lenses, and I'll never get rid of all of them kind of thing. Uh, so there is the, the sad there, everything is capital M meaningless and lowercase meaningless. And it's also, uh, it, it, it's in itself an underworld journey that leads to profound liberation. For me, it did. Uh, that there's an, an amazing kind of freedom and joy and appreciation that can come from this and did for me. Uh, for others, it does not. But yeah, epistemological nihilism, what can be known? Nothing. And, and, and then you went through that journey and then landed in sort of a mysticism place. Yeah, eventually landed in mysticism. Uh, one of the things that, which in this case is sort of the, uh, when it comes to the divine, there is nothing else. And even nothing, that's the divine too. That, uh, you know, so every, basically everything is the divine. You know, the, um, you're the divine, the air outside is the divine, the cherim. Well, I'm not sitting on a chair, but if I were sitting on a chair, that would be the divine. And the divine is also me. Uh, there is nothing else. And so all of it is sort of, I would describe it in these this sort of metaphor. The infinite adorns masks of particularity so that it can behold itself as both lover and beloved. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's really beautiful. <laughs> one of the things that the the I had read a whole lot of Jewish mysticism prior to that stage. And one of the things that they had that appears in there frequently that I didn't get until I was drowning in that abyss is that uh, you know they'll say that the final name of God is Ayin, which is the word for nothing. Uh, that that nihilism, that abyss that I was drowning in, is the divine, or slash is being held by the divine, or it is breathing, or you know that kind of weird sense. But I could only experience that when I was intentionally allowing myself to drown in it. You know, that if I held back and tried to protect myself from it, I couldn't see that. But only when I was drowning in it, did I see that, uh, have this kind of experience. Hmm. So the thing that we, we wanted to focus on today is just sort of your journey, uh, with, with the music of corn. And can you sort of, uh, like lay out the basic, the basic track, and then we're going to get into the songs uh, that are sort of your touch points. And I will make a playlist uh, that I will put in the show notes because I'm not going to try to sample any bits of corn on uh, this podcast because I don't know how copyrights work with musicians I'm not directly talking to. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and another thing that I want to make sure to bring in is uh, Greek mm -hmm. and Oedipus. And how that's a really huge part of this too. Uh, it's not just that, yeah, okay, well, pause. So the general arc that I'm gonna be talking about with Korn is that, uh, so they're singing about and, you know, really gut-wrenchingly uh, bringing out and experiencing in their music, uh, childhood trauma and dealing with it. Uh, the, the singer, the lead singer was uh, sexually abused and raped uh, through his teenage years, was also constantly gay bashed, uh, even though he was straight, which made figuring out his identity very difficult. Uh, and then the other big thing that their songs deal with is uh, uh, drug addiction. So they're basically, you know, three main topics for their first five entire albums, four albums. Uh, yeah, they were singing about child abuse, bullying, and drug addiction. Uh, 
And so through the arc of the first six albums in particular, there's this deepening of that relationship more and more and more. Wait, I need to say a different thing first. So part of the ways that I'm going to connect this to tragedy as well and the underworld is that uh, the song topics required that he completely uh, deal with and face, you know, and like swallow whole the horrors that he was talking about. Uh, and so there's sort of a dismembering there. And also the recording of it required that in the recording of it, he gave himself over to it. Absolutely. Uh, if you listen to the songs there, uh, I mean, he's not just singing about the feelings he's digging into them and letting them rip him apart as he's singing. Uh, and then even in the performance on stage, he does the same thing. Uh, he, absolutely gives himself over it. And afterwards, as a, you know, his bandmates have said that after every performance, he's a total wreck. Uh, I mean, he really surrenders to it and dives in. Um, and so that experience is a dismembering one that destroys you uh, and also ends up having this rebirth slash gift of the underworld element to it. But it, requ it requires being absolutely flayed. Uh, and so sort of a big part of what I'm going to talk about the other is that through the arc of the first uh, six albums, what you see is that there's this progression from singing about the thing as if it were happening right fucking now, right? That he's singing about these traumas and just about, it's about being in it. Uh, the second album then sort of moved a little bit further and was singing it about what it feels like right now in the present, dealing with the things in the past. Uh, and then with the third, there's more a, a different sort of present of uh, presence of an awareness of uh, sort of a who I am now, who I am now, and what the public persona is, and the relationship between him and his music that that starts to come out in the third one. In the fourth, there's a you know an even further evolution where the the songs are now looking at his entire life his life trajectory in dealing with these traumas, right? You know, what it's done to him over time. Uh, and so, you know, you start to seeing thing, uh, songs about things like sex addiction and stuff like that and the way that it mm -hmm. that's just ripping all of his uh, relationships apart. The fifth album then is sort of at the very bottom of the underworld. Uh, you know, if you think of diving all the way to the lightless parts of the ocean and then you dive even further until you get to the actual ocean floor, you know, of total lightlessness and weird fucking monsters. Uh, that's where he's at in the fifth album in, in that it's largely a, an existentialism, sort of a, an album that he's dealing with the, uh, the big nothing after death and the wrestling with that. And, you know, will there be suicide or will there be life? And, you know, is there, uh, is everything meaningless kind of stuff in the sixth album, then there's, he, has grabbed the gold at the bottom of the ocean and is coming back up and is bringing the gift of the underworld back to the people. And you see that in songs that are about, uh, you know, having been flayed, he's started to sew himself back together and realizing that he's uh, simultaneously a new person and becoming more of himself than he ever was. Uh, yeah. So that's a big arc of what I'm going to try to talk about. Um, and another little side note is that 
one of the big changes, aside from the stylistic change that Korn introduced with new metal, a new way of doing music, uh, there was a profound shift in subject matter that they brought on in that before all rock music was basically about being a rock God, being the most powerful dude with giant muscles and hair, you know, it was, it was about mm-hmm. being, uh, this God and, you know, being adored and look at me, I'm so awesome. And instead with, with corn, it wasn't about that at all. This was about the rage of the kid that gets shoved in his locker all the time. Right. This was actually speaking for the, uh, you know, the, the people that were being, uh, trampled on by the, the big, powerful, you know, popular type people uh, and giving a voice to them and allowing them to experience and deal with uh, the bullshit that they were facing. So, again, Underworld Journey. Yeah. Um, thank you for mm-hmm. illustrating that that whole arc. And we'll have to I'll, I'll with the with the playlist thing, I'll lay out like the the names of the, the album so so people can follow along with that. Um, and I forgot if, um, you've been saying flail, uh, flaying a lot. And I forgot if we descri- if, if you described that, that piece of the Kali imagery. Oh, Kali. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the image of Kali, you know, um, in, in Hinduism, there are sort of two big categories of their deities, right? There's the big giant ones. And then that, uh, Kali is part of, and then there's, the ones that are sort of underneath that, that are uh, almost very similar in some ways to the Olympian deities of Greece. You know, you've got the, the lightning bolt father dude, you've got the warrior person, you've got, you know, right, the thing, you know, in charge of fire, those sorts of deities. The big ones, though, uh, are deities that if you keep thinking about what they are and what it means, then it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you realize that there is nothing else, you know, and even nothing that's God too, that, you know, and that's each of them, even though they simultaneously are there, they're all sort of masks of the, you know, particularity of the infinite. And so they, they lead to different sorts of liberation in, uh, in facing that and dealing with that. For Kali in particular, uh, I have to describe her through a couple different angles. Um, One is that she's absolutely terrifying. Uh, Not only is she, you know, having all these fangs and drinking a lot of blood, you know, she's covered in the gore of everything she's killed. Like she's made a skirt out of, uh, you know, the severed arms of the people that she's, you know, the stuff that she's killed and the people and everything uh, got a, she has a bandolier of severed heads and she's even uh, and her hair is really wild, but she's basically naked and uh, skin is super dark, ultra black. Uh, and, and she's holding a severed head. And the way that that works in the iconography that of the context is that that's your head. That's the devotee's head. Right. So, uh, she's absolute horror, right. Especially since all of the things that I described in her image are things of spiritual pollution slash defilement in the context. Right. So the idea is that, you know, if God is love, then God is horror and terror too. That, uh, the divine is so loving that it absolutely will meet us everywhere. Uh, and and so that includes in terror and horror and, and trauma and shit that that's one of the faces of the divine because the God, the divine is too loving to let that not be it um, or to not be that as well. So the liberation from this comes in recognizing that her fearsomeness is our fear uh, that, you know, it's it's our in, it's our 
unwillingness to embrace the really hard shit in life, right? And the, and the ways that it unmakes us and, and kills us and stuff, uh, that our unwillingness to face that and, and love it is what makes it so terrifying. But instead, if we can embrace it, you know, with unconditional love and gratitude, uh, then that the liberation that comes with that is that the entire, everything in life becomes beautiful. It stops being good or bad and it just becomes beautiful. Uh, that the pollution or defilement that you see in her image, right? That's our fear of the stuff that really what she's saying is there is no pollution. Everything is perfect. Uh, so that's one approach to her. Um, the other, you know, angle that I would say is that, uh, she is the most ferocious warrior, not the most skilled or most disciplined or most honorable, right? She's completely done with honor, right? Because there's too much at stake is the idea. The, the honorable warrior, that's a different deity. Uh, she's the most ferocious one. And it's uh, in the West, it's often referred to as the mother bear instinct. It's because of that. Okay. The reason she's the most ferocious is because she is a mother and her children are threatened which gives me goosebumps every time I say it, that it, so it, it, it is this utterly ferocious violence because of love rather than because of anger exactly. But, you know, with the mother bear, right, there's mom, all she wants to do is roll around in the, you know, in the flowers with her babies, right? But if something in her eyes uh, threatens or steps between her and her babies, then she'll just, you know, murder it to death fatally until it dies uh, without any hesitation, right? Because she knows what matters. Right, the, the one thing that matters is this love. Uh, so she's that part of the divine in response to us, and then also our that part of us in response to ourselves and to others and to the world. The idea is sort of that if you put something between you and the divine, you know, the divine will destroy it. You hear that uh, truism said in some contexts. It's it's a lot like that. That uh, we put these barriers between us and liberation, between us and the divine, and the. Kali as, you know, the destroyer is th that part of the divine that loves too much to let something stand between us. That if we're chained, she'll cut our arm off so that we can walk towards her. You know, I mean, she's just, just she's done being patient, <laughs> that kind of a thing. And so <clears throat> you is, as you keep, you know, thinking about her image and stuff, is you keep approaching her, getting closer and closer, and she keeps destroying and, you know, beheading all the things that are between you and her, right? So this is between you and the divine slash infinite slash yourself. And eventually, there's nothing between you. You're naked and you're doing it. You know, you're in absolute embrace because you're trying to get as close as possible. And still, there's that little barrier, right? There's the, the final barrier is you, your sense of separateness. Your, you know, what in the West often gets called an ego. That that is the the thing separating you from her. And so what she does is she cuts your head off, right? And that's why she's holding your head, right? Is because then you know, and then drinks all your blood and eats you and stuff, because then she, all there is is her, which both means, that, you know, and so at that point, then it would actually be the height of hubris or blasphemy and stuff for someone experiencing that, not to say, you know, something like I am the truth or, you know, I am God or whatever, because to do otherwise would be to claim separateness, right. And to deny the fact that it is you. Uh, and so from that, then, like I said, you know, life becomes infinitely beautiful and everything becomes amazing. And you, it's just this place of absolute love for absolutely everything. That if you can, there's a line from a play, a perfect Ganesh. Uh, I want to, 
I want to kiss a leper full on the lips without feeling any revulsion. Right. That kind of, so, you know, people who talk about her tend to be really smitten with her because it's that sort of absolute love. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Is that too Yeah. Much? Cool. No, uh, that was, that was, that was a, that was a journey of a thing. Um, and I, I, had heard heard you break down that before, but that imagery, uh, like I think, different things things struck in there that it is this this approach of the infinite, and I think uh, it was in a, a conversation on the like little Facebook live uh, conversation that I think I did with Wesley. That's that's out in the New Faith in the Media feed, but I think he he was referring to approaching the divine as like a, like um, I, oh like on an access so it's like the it's approaching the infinite like like one of those grabs like calculus that i should remember asymptote there we go uh Dude, yeah so, like that whole idea that's so crazy that you said that because one of the metaphors i like to use is uh you know i'll say the divine is the universe divided by zero so yeah dude, dude. <laughs> yeah. oh the last thing that i wanted to say about her image right is so uh -huh. she's covered in all this gore and she's you know the ultimate badness and stuff like that and after she severed your head you know and she's standing on the dead body of, of shiva you know which is so she's killed your whole universe too uh after you know, in all that she then has the audacity to have two of her arms in particular uh mudras right the in particular hand poses that represent things and so one of them is the have no fear you know <laughs> right pose and the other is you know uh, and the other is the gift giving pose so after murdering the shit out of you, she says, don't worry, nothing of any consequence has been taken from you. Now you're free. Now you're ready to meet me. Hmm. I want to, I want to circle this, this back to, back to corn. And what it makes me think of too, is the, is like the sacrifice of like the artist and this whole, like, which, which can get kind of like, be a kind of a lot sometimes but it's this idea of like well we're gonna turn our pain into art and you know like uh which sometimes you need your pain to 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 be pain though <laughs> and and transform it in other ways and then make it into art sometimes it is too hot and i think that's the interesting thing you're saying with with um with corn is the willing is is the willingness to be put your put it in the moment and have and in almost like um, so, I wanted to uh, transition into the the first song we were going to talk about, uh, uh, Daddy. But the the idea that because uh, that is the one that was the most striking, where it's like, oh no, he is in it in this moment. So go ahead and uh, speak to that. Yeah. So um, that song is uh, about uh, the rape and sexual abuse in his family that he experienced, and. Uh, yeah, in it, he uh, had, you know, at the end, it increases during the performance. And then, you know, especially at the end, he has this total emotional breakdown uh, because he's screaming his pain and is in the moment as if it's right there. Uh, and the, you know, this isn't a, it, it's so intense that it, I mean, it's that they never perform the, the song publicly. They've done it like four times. And the reason is really interesting. It's not because it's too much. The reason is because, uh, in his words, you know, it's magic, meaning like that, that recording of that song was a particular moment of like absolute divinity kind of a thing, my language, that 
if he were to perform it live, everyone would expect that level of a freak out. And, you know, that's not going to happen every time. And so he knows that if he performed it, it would be a disappointment like every time because that recording was so perfect. Yeah, his breakdown there is sufficiently extreme, extreme that, you know, almost like half the song is uh, after the song is supposed to have ended, uh, him, you know, weeping and screaming uh, into the microphone or not even in the microphone, but just around in the room. And his bandmates, uh, thankfully having the, the wherewithal to know to keep playing the music, but not like, you know, chorus and verse, but just sort of to provide, they were going along with it and sort of vibing off of him with some background echoes. And, uh, but you can hear that it was so intense that there are a bunch of times when they tried to make it stop. There'll, you know, be some musical villain, wah, 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 dog, you know, and silence, right? Cause they're, they're like, holy shit, <laughs> right? Trying to stop it. And, you know, it didn't, uh, it, the track eventually ends when he just literally walked out of the studio. Uh, and you can hear the door open and close, actually. But um, so, yeah, so, you know, he yeah. completely gives himself over to it and uh, is instead of singing about how he's so awesome, you know, or things like that, uh, he's singing about how this experience did and still is uh, ripping him to pieces. Absolutely. That it's just total awfulness. Um, but that there's and it provides a great gift for audiences at the time and, you know, still, I think, uh, of letting them go there uh, rather than having to keep it locked away, they can actually go through it. And it's a lot safer to do with a musician, right. You know, with music uh, because that's how music is uh, and to give a voice to that part of ourselves. Uh, and, you know, for me, I was dealing with all, you know, my traumas and shit. Uh, and so it was, profoundly liberating uh having these songs that really went there into the uh deep lightless places the hmm. yeah the, the lyrics are something you, intense, you know uh, yeah the lyrics are the lyrics are intense it hurt um, as uh, a child oh, tied down that's something oh okay so I'm going to go also, also, I'm curious why there's an echo if you have headphones, because, so I'm wondering what your output situation is, because it only should echo if you have an out, that's, that means that there, my voice is going into an output instead of your headphones, so I'm confused. Is it better? Um, so I'm not hearing the echo that you are, but let me take my headphones off and just use the laptop just in case okay. an interface, just in case. Uh, and then you can speak and see if there's an echo. Is that all right? Okay. Yeah. Let's see. I don't know. If I, I feel like that might make it more echo, but we'll find out. <laughs> You'd have to wait a minute for it to catch up. Uh, okay. Okay. So are you encountering an echo now? I am talking and I am not hearing an echo. I wait, maybe this is like a, Edgar Allan Poe thing. Okay, well, I'm gonna say the thing I'm gonna say, and and if we have to make adjustments, uh, we will. So, all right, back to the content. Um, so, what you were saying about music being a safe place to encounter um, that that traumatic moment and to sit with it really made me think uh, of your description of Kali earlier 
and and yeah. uh and and that this idea that music can act as that pull where it's like it's safe we can sit with this and we can and this is this is a safe place to to process that and that by uh the singer like going to that place in the recording and also setting the boundary that he was not going to do that again um like i mean that's also incredibly important as well so i think that's actually a really good example of like how it's like this can there's this ritual that can be cleansing and powerful with listening to these songs and also the person who makes the art doesn't necessarily have to sacrifice themselves every night to do it for people to clarify though that's not why he doesn't perform it right because okay does intentionally let himself be ripped apart in every performance. Uh, the thing that he, and that he doesn't, I mean, really every performance is he seriously goes there all the way and lets it rip him to pieces and freaks out. And it, you know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and afterwards is a complete and total mess. Uh, so it, it isn't that that prevents him from doing the song. It's only uh, a, Marketing isn't the right word, but it's an awareness that the freak out on the CD on the album was so amazing and so intense and so absolute that he won't be able to recreate that much intensity uh, on, you know, in front of fans again. Right. It's sort of like that. That was the, the perfect 10, you know, and everything else is going to be a 9.9 naturally. Uh, and so it would disappoint the fans if you were to do that song and not completely lose his shit all the way, you know, I mean that hard. Uh, so it's not the, yeah, it's not that he's not willing to be flayed on stage. He absolutely is. Sorry, correct. Okay. I, I, well, that's, that's, that's good clarity. I, I, I read into it, like, you know, as sort of my own songwriter journey, um, you know, yeah. Uh, but it's good to know that is the actual story on that for sure but still I wanted to highlight that that was that's an interesting through line that we just sort of unpacked there um, so yeah so there's that let's move forward in the corn timeline um, uh, oh okay the, I was just gonna because you mentioned being the sacrifice or sa you know sacrifice yeah. uh, that's very much what Oedipus and Tragedy is about uh, that the sacrifice isn't the thing that we give up. Uh, the sacrifice is the thing that uh, becomes the divine. And in, the, in doing so, you know, it becomes, that's the thing that becomes the God. And in doing so transforms us, the community into the God. Uh, that the, the deal with the tragedies is that the tragic moment isn't when the big bummer happens. The tragic moment is when the person gets to this precipice and realizes that they have a sort of a choice, right? They can, uh, they can unmake everything that they are, you know, like destroy themselves completely uh, in an act that is the most them there is, right? Being absolutely true to themselves at the same time that it destroys them. Or they can try to bond to some identity, right? You know, make the safer choice which will still cost them their entire identity, right? And it will like, it's sort of like strangling the flame of a star uh, that, you know, the star can either go supernova, which is amazing, <laughs> you know, and it's, and it's most divine moment kind of, uh, or it can try to hold on to its flame, which will just slowly uh, strangle it until it becomes a brown dwarf. And it becomes, uh, 
so that that's the sacrifice, the the willingness to absolutely become yourself, and the way that that simultaneously destroys. Uh, he was told at the beginning, you know, that the reason there's a plague in your town is because someone did this bad thing. And we, you know, the gods won't let the plague go away until that person is banished. So he's constantly, as the king of this uh, little city state, he's constantly investigating, trying to find who it was that did that. And at every turn, there's some indication that it, you know, it's it starting to look like it's him. Right. And he says, we have to go further. And everyone says, don't turn back. You can't handle what you're about to uncover. Just chill and play it safe. And at every turn, he says, no, I have to find out. I have to go all the way there. So he does this and eventually discovers, oh, my God, it's him. He's the one who killed his dad and boned his mom. Right. And, uh, you know, so he's that's a real bummer. He pokes his eyes out, you know, and uh, his mom hangs himself. None of that is the tragic moment. yet. The tragic moment comes just after that. When he says, therefore, as king, I banish myself from this city, right? Because that is the, that was sort of the thing that it was leading him to is that in doing that, it's the most kingly thing ever, right? Looking out for his people and stuff. Like it's the job, right? And, and in doing so, he becomes the you know king in an absolute sense. And it unmakes his kingness, right? And his individual self, Uh but the other option, right, not banishing himself, that would have undermined and sort of really destroyed the core of all of his kingliness anyway. And so what he would be holding on to would be this utterly spoiled identity, right? So he's at that choice. And that's so that's what I say about the sacrifice, right? If you think about it, he gave himself over to his life so entirely that he became the sacrifice and became the divine, the God, right? That he's the one that did that. And in the tragedy, we become him too. Ta-da. Ta-da. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. That is like all that good, like hero's journey transformation kind of stuff that I absolutely dig. And yeah and it's it's so cool how these how these metaphors just keep appearing in all these different ways. It's almost as if there's a hero with uh shall we say one thousand faces like what <laughs> um awesome uh yay, I love all these mythology adventures um so let's let's uh let's uh a- attach our focus on another uh a corn song so um and I will let you sort of pick from our 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 chrono our or list of songs. <laughs> yeah, so you know, like a like you were saying, all of these you know three main strands or for underworld journeys and Kali and Dionysus slash tragedy slash Oedipus and corn really for me are just totally braided together. Uh, that you know every time I'm talking about one, I'm, I'm basically talking about the other three also. Um, when they moved to their second album, you know, sort of like I was saying, there they were start. He was this. Oh, he's been very blunt about saying that he treats the creation of every album, you know, or he treats every album as personal therapy. And so the reason why their sound and stuff changes from time to time is because he, you know, he is moving, right? And who he is and what he's dealing with. Uh, their second album, Life is Peachy, is uh, the angriest album I've ever heard, uh, you know, because they, well, it, it just is. Uh, the... And so the sort of transition that I wanted to point out is 
that now he now the songs are about uh, how he feels in the present about the events. And so with the song, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, one of the things that he keeps talking about is, you know, like, uh, my childhood is gone because I loved you. And this is also about the sexual abuse. And uh, eventually, you know, you get to uh, him screaming in desperation, this fucking pain that I feel, this fucking hate that I feel, this fucking pain that I feel, this fucking hate that I feel. That there's a, a real depth to that in that it's not just a song of uh, I hate you and I'm right to hate you. It's a song of looking at himself having that hatred and wishing he didn't. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the emotion, the emotional complexity in this song is I think really underrated that now he's talking about a much deeper violation or a, another violation. I don't want necessarily deeper, but uh, one of not just you harmed me. Right. Uh, but you've turned me into someone who hates. I didn't hate before this. And now I am consumed with this hatred and, you know, I mean, and, and it's destroying me. It's the, the kind of, Flaying and things that are going on there is just breathtaking uh, for me. Uh, and it, one of the things that it does it also that I really, really appreciate is that it breaks away from the, <clears throat> from the mid nineties narrative that was all over TV uh, that having a traumatized past is a glorious thing, you know, that it's like a badge of honor or something and that it's a positive thing and all that. Uh, instead he, he was allowing it to be, uh, terrible, right? You know what I mean? That uh, not just then, but but now that, I mean, this fucking hate that I feel, screaming that in desperation, uh, it, it's just really admirable, I think. Hmm. Do you want me to move forward or do you want yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, keep, keep, keep moving, keep moving forward. I'm just, uh, I, yeah, um, I'm, the thought that 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 comes to mind is is just and that this might be a larger you know reflection on this genre uh is that um i was really into like screamy angry rock as a teenage uh female uh musical theater child and oh, yeah. like i had two settings musical theater and screamy new metal metal and those are my two settings <laughs> and and i think i think there there is actually a venn diagram there that makes sense you know <laughs> absolutely like yeah. it's like i want them to bear their emotions and i need like you know and and that reality and i think yeah that the idea that they uh, sort of were pioneers in this like all right, we're we're loud yelly dudes, but we have feelings, and here are feelings that we are yelling. If that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, they're they're deeply entwined with my entire spiritual slash religious slash theological journey, uh, in in very similar ways. Yeah, I completely get. Hey, yeah, I love them. Uh, yeah, with the <laughs> with their third album, a lot of the songs are about. Uh, what fame is doing to them. You know, they, they do have songs about deep tragedy and stuff, but they also have the songs about the relationship between or between that trauma and dealing with it and now being super duper famous. And, uh, and you know, and the 
cultic image. I use that word in a positive sense, not a negative. I'll get to that. Um, you know, and the, the cultic image that they're cultivating with songs like Children of the Corn or, uh, you know, Got the Life, where it's, that's the subject matter, is, is the who we are as this giant community of corn slash corn fans uh, and the, what they're doing in their concerts. And so there's, as much as it's, uh, it is a little bit softer of an album than the, the first two. Uh, in some ways. And, it, you know, it's a more slow tempo and it's uh, less all about giving into just rage, but it is about um, the kind of dismembering that occurs when you start to realize that the the public image of you is destroying the the personal image you have of yourself or that it is making it inaccessible to people or that it is becoming bigger than you are. Uh, which and so I and there's also you know plenty of trauma songs that I think are great. Um, that was sort of their third album was what went right at when they became uh, super famous and then I mean you know like where they were all over the radio and then became more and more famous for albums four and five. That's, that's the and main. Can you say the titles on 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 those just to give a little bit of context? Oh yeah, um, uh, Children of the Corn and Got the. Okay. Children of the Corn is about the the who we are thing that I was talking about. So that's the one of giving himself over to the public persona. There's a kind of dismembering that happens that way. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's called Children of the Corn. <laughs> and uh, Got the Life is, you know, uh, has in its chorus, uh, God told me you'll never, no, God hates me. I'll, you know, you'll never see the light. Who wants to see God told me you've already got the life. Oh, I see that there's, you know, now he's engaging this uh, hollowness or whatever that, that is found in fame. Uh, and the, anyway, it, it's a great song. In my opinion. Uh, yeah. Freak on a leash is the other one that was all over the radio from that album, which is again about, uh, you know, feeling the, the traumatic stuff now, you know, feelings about it, about the past event in the present. Uh, yeah. yeah both of those were ones that I, I definitely heard a lot but hadn't really picked picked apart like I don't think I realized that he was singing about God till I looked at the lyrics and then I went oh oh okay <laughs> and you know one of the things I think, they're, I they're intentional about is never publish mm -hmm. lyrics of their songs right their their CDs never always had a booklet that was just pictures and no words you know that oh, interesting of, and the reason is because uh, you know, they're saying that knowing the lyrics and having them written down is a crutch that prevents you from relating to the song, right? Because it's a way of telling you what's already there so that you already have this preconceived notion. And then you, what you hear in the song is that preconceived notion. But if you don't have access to the certain to the lyrics definitely, and with his uh, use of guttural growling and things that uh, to just express emotion that isn't words, but it sounds like words, but it's not quite, but maybe it is. Uh, his, you know, the, to express the things that can't really be put into words also, uh, is that it forces you to engage the song and listen to it and relate to it as it's happening and form your own uh, experience of it, which uh, for the first while I was irritated with because I wanted to know the damn word. But uh, these days I'm like, wow, that's actually genius. Yeah, no, that makes sense because like a lot of song lyrics, like 
if you see them on paper, you're like, I, you did the math to make the things because there's a, there's a certain mathematical thing that you have to do to get the to get the form and the poetry right. But yeah, no, they they are words that are meant to be sung. And that's actually really smart and really cool. And also kind of like, oh, you, you could put the lyrics in the jacket and I could experience the song, though. Like, I don't think anyone, like, holds out their playbill while they listen to corn. Uh, but, uh, you know, to, 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 to follow along with the let's pull out our hymnals and listen along. But no, like, it's, it's, I feel like a lot of people experience the song, at least I experience a song, and then I look up the lyrics later. But that's interesting that they would prevent any further like analysis, and you have to listen to it. Um, that's that's actually really cool. Um. <laughs> also, I think I'm still stuck on now. Pull out your hymnals, and we shall sing. <laughs> well, you know, on a leash. The thing is, though, I I definitely absolutely consider their music to be sacred music. Uh, I mean, I've already said that, you know mm. that shouldn't be a surprise yeah. to what I've said about it. But yeah, for me, the yeah, deeply, deeply spiritual. Um, mm. With their fourth album, Issues, the as I experienced them, the, their sh the the viewpoint has shifted. Oh, interestingly enough, the the style has shifted. Also, it's still definitely, definitely new metal, but it's uh, it's got this uh, slam poetry feel to it that m way more than any of the other albums had. Um, and there's definitely some experimenting going on with how to do music, but uh, theme-wise, the songs are now about uh, looking at his life and his whole life trajectory and what those traumatic experiences have done to him over the long term. right? So there's, again, this deeper level of engagement now uh, that, you know, with songs like... Uh, Trash being about sex addiction and, you know, how uh, his, uh, what the stuff has done to his soul so far is preventing him from having any real relationship with anyone. Uh, and, and, and again, it's this, it's not this like, yay, I love banging groupies, right? It, it's about, uh, it, it, it's about this dismembering experience. Sorry to keep you repeating the word, but this experience uh, in that of not being able to find anything satisfying and always being uh, drawn towards more, but knowing that it's not going to, right, that it's not actually going to touch him or change him or, or affect him in the ways that he wants it to. And that, you know, now, uh, yeah, and it's the, the inability to, to relate in the ways that he wants to. Uh, Sorry, I don't remember if I said what song I'm talking about. I'm sort of talking about Make Me Bad, but I'm mostly talking about Trash. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and there is a line in there, just a quick disclaimer. Uh, there's a line in there, you know, these little girls, they make me feel so goddamn accelerated. Uh, he's, he's talking about girls that are, you know, like 20, 20-year-old women, 20 women-ish, you know, the groupies and stuff, mm -hmm. like children. Uh, but yeah, the, it, it's a, it's a different sort of reflection on pain and sharing of uh, a, a different kind of desperation. In, in Make Me Bad though, it, it's slightly different rather than about being an inability to relate, this one, you know, or connect uh, and only finding meaninglessness in, in sex. 
this one is more about the momentary experience of doing it and then the immediate aftermath that uh, there's, you know, he of uh, not wanting to go through with it, but doing it anyway, you know, finding himself doing it anyway, and then experiencing, uh, you know, uh, the sort of sense of defilement or whatever. Uh, those are my words. Uh, afterwards, right? The, you know, like the lyrics, I feel the reason as it's leaving me, no, not again. Uh, it's quite deceiving as I'm feeling the flesh make me bad. Dionysus, by the way, the, the god of tragedy, uh, is very connected to uh, th that sort of uh, the kind of instinctual sexuality where you lose temporarily lose your individuality. Uh, you know where it it's more about the needs of the drive and the needs of the uh, body slash instinct. You know that that kind of a thing. Where, you know the sort of animalistic thing that we always have to wrestle with. So anyway, I, I found it very very meaningful as well. It came out my junior or senior year in high school, I think. Um, hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's also like in the, the era of listening to rock 108. So yeah, I, I know some of those songs, but I never listened. Like I hadn't really listened through like a whole corn album before we had this conversation. So this is, this continues to be really cool. So that was the fourth album. Yep. Issues. Okay. So then what is next? Okay. So next is, uh, their, their fifth one, which is called Untouchables. And this was at the absolute height of uh, the music industry uh, when CDs were still the thing. And so this was when they, you know, uh, the publishing companies would spend, you know, millions of dollars in the creation of an album, right? And then sell the CDs for a bajillion, jillion dollars. And so this was, at, you know, really at, at the height of their... Uh, their uh the bands in particular uh experience of uh fame and sort of now they're the rock gods kind of a thing and that i mean for example to uh the kind of excess that was going on right they spent two million dollars i think that's the right number just trying to find the right drum set did they go on a quest <laughs> i guess I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how that happens but it did uh you know yeah they two, i think it's two, i'm pretty sure it's two million dollars trying to find the right drum set and uh, so that's sort of the, that excess that was going on. And then, you know, he talks about uh, recording a song while a, uh, another rock musician is, you know, in the corner getting a blowjob from a hooker or whatever, uh, his words, I think. The, you know, I mean, that sort of excess and stuff. But the, uh, that was, so that's sort of between four and five or during the making of five. But this, the subject matter in the, in the fifth album is very existential. Uh, and, you know, now it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's about how the, the fame and the persona has, in fact, murdered the, the individual person. Uh, rather than being about the engagement and the wrestling with it and stuff, it's really about an experience of utter hollowness uh, apart from it, uh, which is, again, really intense. But more than that, there's a lot about death and wrestling with the, you know, questions of uh, meaninglessness uh, and, you know, yeah, you know, the big existential crisis type stuff, which is totally where underworld journeys lead you, right? It's similar, comparable to my big experience of the epistemological nihilism that I was talking about, right? Or the, you know, the being played by Kali or the, that, I mean, the, the underworld journey does lead you to death in the, you know, 
bottom of the ocean type stuff. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. you know, a song, uh, am I going to leave this place? That's not, it's called something like that, that, you know, is, is about like, so should I just commit suicide or what? And then, you know, their, uh, hollow life, you know, that we come to this place falling through time, living a hollow life, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, there's this, uh, every, wow. It's sort of that all we are is dust in the wind kind of a thing, but in a rock angsty way. Right. Uh, now I want, I want like a new metal cover of dust in the wind. And I'm just going to put that out to the universe. If anybody, if anybody knows a good one that exists, uh, please send it my way. <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, gonna manifest that someone will find that, that, for me um sorry that's where my brain goes but yes so it is so it is so that album is starting to play more in the underworld themes and the death themes and, and all that and out of curiosity how old is he by this time do you do we know like um so i'd say that all of the all of the albums are these albums are underworld journey albums but yeah the mm -hmm. oh, not yeah John, but the um i think he was probably 30 at the time uh-huh <laughs> um i there's a thing i've noticed where um i mean but he's been he's he's done been writing underworld journeys but i feel like every songwriter composer like my myself included like everybody has a 30 thir turning or around 30 uh existential album and i was just like mm -hmm. is that what's happening here because there's all the going through the underworld and then there's and I'm 30, <laughs> you know. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, sense, yeah. I, you know, apparently I'm told that yeah, 30 to 35 is the age of the, um, yeah, the big existential crisis, the so so yeah, so-called midlife crisis. Uh, yeah. I've you know some of it, apparently that's true for other people. Uh, for me, you know, I was sort of like born in the underworld, and you know, and have was doing that from the start and was always into the big giant question. And, you know, why would you worry about a car when you can, you know, look at God and death and stuff. Uh, but uh, yeah. And so one of the things that I wanted to make sure we get to is the sixth, al sixth album, right? To yes, 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 yes. Larger narrative of underworld journeys. Right. In this one, there's a particular song uh, alive and this is sort of him bringing, you know, now that he, in all of that experience, one of the things that it does is, you know, if you can, if you can survive this underworld journey, uh, which you can only do if you let go in it, absolutely, right? If you try to hold on to yourself, right? If you try to stay non-flayed or protected from it, then it'll destroy you completely. But if you let it destroy you completely, then it will, and then there will be you afterwards bringing this gift back. Uh, that sort of, what do you, and so the, like this song alive, you know, um, it includes lyrics like, you know, once I cried, now, I, now I'm alive, you know, something like I used to hide or once I hide, uh, now I wipe away the tears, you know, I'll never hide again kind of things. Uh, yeah, you know, once I died, now I'm alive. And the, the whole thing is about, you know, like basically uh, what he's uncovered is uh, this absolute unwillingness to, um, to retreat from life and from, you know, not just from other people, but from life in itself and stuff, just like I was talking about with Kali and, you know, Underworld and Oedipus and tragedy that, you know, in, uh, yeah, once I cried, now I wipe away the tears, you know, I'll, 
dang, I wish I could remember the exact lyric, but it, you know, like basically, you know, I'll, I'll never run away ever again. Uh, and so there's a sort of indomitability in there. It's not just that, well, you know, maybe the opponent will defeat me, you know, which is, it's not a, an assumption that that will never happen. It's more of, I'll never, uh, I'll never give up and never, uh, never be completely defeated by those defeats. Instead, I'm going to stand my ground the whole time. And then there I'll be afterwards standing my ground still, uh, there's this inner strength, uh, self-love and kind of, you know, I mean, it doesn't always feel like that, but there, what he's brought back is this kind of, maybe it's confidence, you know, language starts to break down. Right. But there's mm-hmm. this awareness that he, he's bringing something back that there is this, uh, yeah, I don't know, this, this kind of indomitability that, that comes from it. Uh, Generally speaking, the the hope with Underworld Journeys, and it's not a guarantee ever, uh, is that you'll be able to come back afterwards, you know, and and bring the gold that it's at the bottom, you know, the treasure chest at the bottom of the ocean, right, to go with that metaphor some more, that when you get into it, you can find that there. Uh, And so I want to make sure to include that part, that there's, yeah, but also that there's no guarantee of a happy ending. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's, it's also, I mean, it's a series of underworld journeys. So it's, it's continuing to, to say like, well, you've been there and you've come back and you've been there and you've come back. And, uh, yes. yes, And, and, and now as my mom, my, my mom would describe, and this is one of my favorite phrases of my mom is, uh, she described a friend of hers who'd been through some shit as someone who's been to hell and back a few times and knows all the good restaurants. Yes, you know. that, exactly, that is exactly what I'm trying to communicate is that he's always doing that, you know, this sacrifice and he's always doing this underworld journey and always going way to the deep bottom of, you know, the whitelist places and stuff uh, and coming back and always doing it. And the always doing it has a larger arc too. And, and, and the, what the, the result of, be, of doing that, and this is my experience for me too, is that uh, this you know, the underworld starts, stops being the horrible, terrifying place and starts being the place of liberation and the source of joy and compassion. Uh, That's definitely true for me, right? That instead of uh, trying to stay away from it, right? Not wanting to go into the giant tar pit. Instead, what develops is is an ability to be at home there. Uh, And so, you know, it's exactly like I'm talking about with Kali that, you know, that if you can learn to embrace it fully and be absolutely grateful in the moment as things are occurring, then the kind of liberation there is just amazing. And you can serve as something like a guide through the underworld to other people, Hmm. which is what Dionysus actually does in the mythology. He uh, does the psychopomp journey of, you know, taking people in and out of the underworld a few times. Yeah. I... I feel like there's a joke that can be made in here about how like people see like rock music as satanic, <laughs> but it's like, oh no, we will go to the underworld, but we're going to have a nice time there. <laughs> and then we'll no. come back and we'll learn something. <laughs> and let's, yeah. And with, you know, using that sort of framework, I, I would say that one of the things with corn in particular is that instead there's uh, an absolute refusal uh, to 
worship anything in there or, you know, anywhere else, mm. right? That uh, it's not about submitting to an authority down there, right? It, it's about the journeying in and out, the personal journeying there. Um, that, and is, am I making sense? Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it makes sense. It's it's not like it's it's hell in the sense of of the hero's journey going through the 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 darkness and then coming into the light sort of metaphorical thing. Um yeah. and and yeah, like no, and that's and that's and that's sort of what I'm I'm getting at and how that is actually I I I also like to argue that that's a more like practical application of the concept of hell than like any sort of afterward like burning thing but that's that's a whole other that's a whole other thought trail um <laughs> but that's yeah. that's sort of my personal philosophy like absolutely but yeah along similar lines if you look cross-culturally at underworld type mythology uh it turns out there are basically four big rooms to the underworld you know we're talking about okay. process and stuff uh, so, uh, one is that the hall of the ancestors, right? That you go to the land of the dead to meet like, you know, the, the ghost of your dead dad and get advice from him, or maybe a prediction of the future, you know, and you, then you come back and now you know what to do. Right. And so you see this with, uh, Odysseus, when he goes into the underworld, he does it so that he can find out, uh, how to proceed. Um, another is, uh, it's sort of like the granary, if you want to call it that that it's the, uh, after everything has been stripped down from you and, and you've been totally unmade, then the archetypal seeds there in the unconscious can start to sprout and bring a new life. That there's this odd sort of uh, spiritual fertility to the underworld. And there's a kind of rejuvenation that you can only find at the deep, darkest bottom. Uh, Another is, is sort of the, the temenos, right? Which is sort of like the big sacred space, you know? The, the feeling, if you imagine being in, you know, some awesome sacred grove, you know, at midnight when there's a giant full moon overhead and everything's, you know what I mean, awesome, right? That, that sort of feeling of, whoa, right? That that's what we find in the underworld. And the fourth one, oh, crap. Well, sorry, I can't remember it. But you do often- That's okay, who's- Whose whose theory is that? Who do we who, who do we Google to 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 learn about that that more? I don't know if he's directly published this, but where I got that from, what you know, that kind of summary is uh, from Dr. Evans Lansing Smith. He's an uh, okay. an instructor in the mythological studies program that I'm in uh, at Pacifica Graduate Institute, and his big topic that he writes about over and over again is underworld journey type stuff that's sort of been his guiding thing uh and so you know he spoke about that in a class once which blew me away um cool 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 cool, cool. that's yeah and I'm, I'm just thinking of of these different areas that i'm also thinking to clarify like this this term of the underworld is just like it is it is nebulous it's not it's not necessary it's like this it's not necessarily heaven's not necessarily hell it's just like we just died a bit, <laughs> you know, yeah. and things are spooky. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, the, sorry, little side note that something you said reminded me of is uh, one of the things, and this is again from Dr. Evans Lansing Smith, uh, that, and yeah, one of the things about 
that shows up in a lot of myths about the underworld or stories that basically really are about the underworld, even if they don't know it, those sorts of things. Uh, an image that shows up a lot is the mirror, right? That there's a, there's this experience in the process of going through that of really seeing the hell out of your reflection. Uh, and sometimes <laughs> gazing into this underworld mirror uh, in, will also involve seeing some, the truth about some something else, you know, like maybe, you know, you're going through your terrible journey and then you look in this mirror and you see what's uh, happening to your family, right? While you're here in this, you know, awful place or, or so that sort of thing. It shows up a lot. And as it turns out, I don't remember which one. It might be the sixth album, right? Is called Take a Look in the Mirror. And the album cover is this giant ass mirror. So, uh, oh, actually in the cover for the second album, showed a young child in front of a mirror and then in the reflection only there's this shadow of like a much uh you know an older person than them with the hands on the shoulders in sort of a menacing way uh i hadn't even put that together until you were talking and i don't remember why i thought but yeah Ta-da. Ta-da. <laughs> um okay yeah, well, I feel like we could just go on and on about underworld underworld metaphors, uh, but I do want to uh, wrap things up a little bit. Um, and so um, I, I'm going to ask you the question that I try to ask people at the end of every episode, uh, which is uh, sort of a sidetrack, but where does inspiration live in your body? I mean, you can relate all of this back to everything that we've talked about, but where does inspiration live in your body? There's a component of it in the back of my throat connected to uh, sort of an upper heart area, you know, upper heart chakra, kind of like, you know, heart center type thing. Uh, and that's been there since always. And only in the last seven years or so, uh, I've come into contact with and really started to befriend uh, another center there that I, that really was very surprising. And it's a huge deal in my journey and it's, you know, all this kind of stuff, but uh, my intestines actually, the, hmm. yeah, they're, they're sort of the long lost friend, you know, that's been rooting for me the whole time and, but I couldn't hear them kind of a thing. And, you know, reuniting with them was, uh, was this deeply, deeply transformative experience for me. Uh, I, I know it sounds really bizarre, but um, it, it was very meaningful because, you know, you're dealing with like dissociation from the body type stuff mm. that living from the diaphragm up, if you want to think of it that way. And yeah, so that, that makes sense. The, the, the reunion with my intestines was uh, absolutely life-changing. And so, yeah, I've got a, a big uh, heart area some throat, and then, uh, and now recently intestines. Hmm. That's, that's a fascinating answer. And I definitely, as, as, as goofy as that can sound, like, I think that does definitely point at getting to a place where you can listen deeper to your body. Um, and that, and, and that's, that's kind of what it's about, right? You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, and interest, uh, Wow. I hadn't thought to relate this part to the corn story, but I should have because, it's, you know, um, the, the other big thing that was going on is that that was sort of uh, 
you know, my stomachy belly type area was uh, a big area in some of my super traumatic shit, you know? Uh, so it was, yeah, we're you know, reconnecting with parts that I had had to wall off. So yeah, absolutely. Mm. somehow what you were saying made me want to say that. I don't remember, but yeah. So anyway, it all wraps yeah. up. That, yeah, no, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. And thank you. And thank you for sharing that. And I, I, I'll, I'll share a little bit of like, with, yeah, with my own journey, like, uh, realize, like I used to choke up a lot more cause like, mm-hmm. I was like, I, I used to be afraid to say things and now I have a podcast. Um, but no, like I would, I would, uh, uh like, uh, feel moments where I wanted to speak up to, assorted bullshit and then I would just like feel it choke in my throat and now like there's a certain like freedom but if there are any moments that remind me of that you you feel it in your throat like that's a whole other conversation of where things live in your body but I always I always think it's important to ask these things because I think the journey of like self like the journey of the self and like holding all these heady concepts and everything can live so much more above your shoulders when if you want to actually, you know, in in order to like fully experience the divine and like understand a lot of it is checking in with your body. And that's such a huge part of the whole overarching journey. And um, which is why I love connecting it back to music as well, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. Oh, um, yes. And I also want to make sure that at some point in this recording, uh, maybe right now, maybe not, uh, is included the really strong statement that uh, this isn't just about trauma only. It's not just trauma land, right? It's also about Mm. the gifts and love and liberation and compassion and freedom uh, that you don't want to say come from it because like it's not, it doesn't work if you justify the, the trauma stuff. Right. It, you know, uh, it, but there's the, well, basically, yeah, that, that, you know, for example, Kali becomes not just terrifying and awful, but actually amazing. You know, that, that experience is one of, uh, almost a, a childlike, uh, enjoyment of everything kind of, or, or whatever, you know what I mean? So, uh, a lot of the songs that we discussed were very trauma centered and, uh, but it's not about trauma is awesome. It's about wrestling. You know, it's not reveling in trauma. It's wrestling with trauma and that the, the kind of wholeness and, uh, joy and compassion and blah, 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 that can come, that can come from that. Right. Wrestling with yeah, trauma. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for segueing into this. Um, and I guess, um, speak more about what um the life after or not life after wrestling but life after you've gotten good at wrestling and are slightly more out of the underworld uh what what that what that looks like and i don't know if there are any uh songs on that on that most recent album to connect back to with that but just speaking to what that looks like um um both physically and personally as much as you feel comfortable sharing on that so, I mean, for most recent album, you know, the uh, he's they've published a, a bunch of albums since then, and the mm-hmm. most one is specifically about him dealing with uh, 
the death of his wife who died of a drug mm-hmm. over after, you know, years and years of addiction and him trying to get her clean and stuff. And, you know, so like the final words on that album are just him crying and saying, I've failed, I've failed, I've failed. Uh, you know, he's got some, there are songs on that one. Like uh, th- this album is called, interestingly enough, The Nothing. <laughs> okay, right. And there's a bunch of existential shit on it. You know, so you're going back. But uh, one of the songs, uh, I think it, it, well, oh, I think it's called Can You Hear Me, right? Includes in the chorus, right? Can you hear me? Because I'm lost and I may never make it back again. You know, time keeps going on. Uh, I know I'll never be the same again. Or, you know, stuff like that. So, which again ends up illustrating the stuff that we've been talking about. But that's not what you're asking. I'm sorry. Um, the life, quote unquote, after Underworld. The, uh, there's a kind of wholeness that comes from all of this that isn't found any other way. And there's a kind of uh, embracing both self and other and divine and world. There's there's a kind of of that thing that, again, isn't found any other way, right? If you're going for an upper world journey of that, you would see the cosmos and you'd be like, dude, right? You know, that's when you're like, everything is amazing. It, It gets really abstract and it gets really vision of totality kind of that sort of that kind of mysticism underworld mysticism is more that uh when you've been unmade and experienced that kind of capital n nothing uh and then start to see that nothing in everything else right comparable to my epistemological nihilism uh when you see that then there comes even though there's no logical reason why it should be this way what starts to come from that unmaking is compassion and love right you know there's no you can't defend it logically why that would necessarily create that but the the nothing in everything starts to be this uh total connection and this compassion and stuff uh that's my experience and uh and you know certain strands of buddhism will, will talk about that too uh the so in the albums you're saying what it looks like afterwards i guess the the big thing that i would talk about is uh yeah that song you know that i was mentioning in the sixth album uh, alive that uh you know once i died now i'm alive and there's this you know wiping away the tears and never backing down not i don't just mean standing up to bullets right that kind of never backing down but this uh uh, this way in which nothing can actually threaten you anymore on a certain level, because you can be ripped apart to a million pieces and sew yourself back together just fine. Uh, and, you know, and again, it, it also brings back this sort of, uh, I've experienced all of this, so I know what it's like. And so when I see other people in these situations, I, I, know, I know that place, right? And I can go there and be there with them or, you know, and maybe... Uh, show them the way, you know, the tunnels that I was walking in the underworld, or maybe not if they don't want, but uh, that kind of a thing. That the the song alive, I'm not necessarily making it sound like it because I all of a sudden can't remember any of the words, but the it's a very empowering type of a song, right? It, it's a very uh, uh, celebrating the results of having intentionally wrestled with all of the deep dark shit. Uh, yeah, that the, the, the song it's. Yeah, 
I'm going to start repeating myself. Oh yeah, no. And you're, you're speaking to something that is extremely universal. And I think as someone who's, uh, who's gone through these experiences, I, I, I connect with more of like a, uh, well, I guess with the Buddhist lens and stuff like that, but yeah, uh, there's something objectively, like if you've, if you've gone through something terrible and then you've gotten yourself back on your feet and mentally healthy again, like you, you kind of know what the whole, you know, what the whole show looks like and you can, <laughs> the whole mental health show looks like, and yeah, there is a certain confidence and there's a certain gratitude to having survived that also comes with it that also results in the the compassion and like once you've gotten more comfortable with your own humanity and it it makes it easier to see the humanity in others um and yeah and um, um with with me in particular the the other sort of element i guess is that uh it makes it and this is sort of part of what I was talking about with the, you know, undefeatability or whatever, that uh, by embracing all of the most terrible, you know, things and the, you know, horror in life and the, you know, all the bad shit uh, and all the things that, all that stuff, by embracing it wholeheartedly, you get to this place of, you know, how after you've dealt with something really huge and you, like you were talking about, you know, sort of come out of that underworld, how it's, it goes from being just terrible to being the thing that you wouldn't give up for the world. Right. You know, that, that it, there's something, there's this weird way in which it transforms the past, uh, you know, the trauma itself into also being the gift that you have to give yourself. And so given that if you've done that enough times, or if you, you know, really start to intentionally engage this, then given that gratitude that can come from it, what would it take to be at, to be totally grateful for and to love bad shit as it's happening, right? Since that's going to be possible later, what happens if you try it now, right? What happens if if you're like for you know if you're going through something hard and being grateful for the painfulness of it and the tears and stuff, uh, you know, and not just grateful for the aftermath, but grateful for the, the experience of it, right? That kind of absolute love, right? What it would take is you know it's like oh my god, right? It, it's kind of hmm. mind blowing what it, what it would take. And that's what you start to approach. Uh, and that's what I start to approach. Like, for example, with, with the death of my dad, right? This was maybe three, four years ago. Um, you know, I got the call where, you know, he had been uh, doing really, really well and, you know, with the cancer. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was apparent that like he was in his last, uh, like he was on the home stretch, of, you know, approaching death. Uh, mm -hmm. So I happened to be, because I'm this PhD student, I happened to be in a position where I could have, could go down and be with him uh, and, and just spend the time with him, you know, and be there uh, with him and my mother and the others. And so I was there for the last two weeks of his life. And I went into it thinking, you know, um, I don't want to blink, right? I don't, I don't want to run away from this. I want to be present for every moment of it. Right. And, you know, cry like hell and really experience the shit out of it without protecting my heart from it. I want to experience all of this. Right. Absolutely. And so that was what I thankfully I was able to do that. Uh, and so what happened was it was this wonderful experience. Um, you know, there was lots of crying, but I but I loved the fact that I was crying and weeping. Right there. You know, and mostly what 
was there was is us sitting next to each other, me holding, you know, holding hands, which we had never really done before. And one of us saying, I love you every five or 10 minutes and meaning it, right? Because all there was, was love at the end, right? It just so happens that because of other things, we didn't have unfinished business, right? Because I had intentionally gone and dealt with all of any of those things, right? So there wasn't baggage, there wasn't stuff. We had faced it, dealt with it. And uh, there was just love at the end, right? And I loved how much it sucked, right? It, it sucked, but the fact that it sucked wasn't bad. It, I loved the suckiness of it. And then the weird result is that uh, I have this profound acceptance of and peace with his death that, uh, you know, like my other, some other people who knew, knew him uh, don't or didn't. Um, that kind of thing. That's what comes from this underworld stuff is, yeah. What would it take to be grateful for and love the bummer as it's occurring. Yeah. It, it's interesting. First of all, that's, a, that's a beautiful story and it's a super inspiring. And I know like, that's not always the way that we approach that situation, especially if it's a, if it's a FFS is, as Brene Brown would say, if it's a fucking first time, like, you know, it's, oh. um, yeah, like that's that's extremely hard, and it actually, it yeah, and I've 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 had moments like that that were more avoidant, and moments where there was more of a community around the hospital bed. Um, I mean, and and some of that also depends on the condition of the person. Um, my mom was my mom was in a coma for four days before she passed, so it was just like, whoopsie doodle. We can't really do anything, you know. I mean, there there was more feelings than whoopsie doodle, but it was very like, you know, it wasn't that. Um, I'm not so, personalizing what I'm talking about and saying people should do their anything like that. Oh, no. happens or anything. No. I'm just saying that is the story that I lived so far. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I wasn't trying to. I. I just. It's. It's. It's really awesome that that you had that moment. And it. And it is. And I. And it's. You know. And we all approach it with with different ways. And also, when you've had one weird hospital moment, and then you have another one, you're more prepared to to go into it because you know. But similar to the underworld situation, I guess. So. Uh, James, where can people find you on the internet? What do you have going on other than defending your uh, dissertation and all that good stuff? I think that's probably the main thing you have happening right now. Um, I haven't really developed much of a social media presence online. So, uh, I mean, I have a Facebook. I, I guess people could try to find me there. The, uh, you know, I'm, yeah, I think the, in the address part, I think it's jamesparin.90 maybe. Something like that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I and all I have going in my life is is that dissertation. That's kind of the only thing that exists in my universe uh, for the most part. The yeah, I, I'm hoping that I'll eventually be able to turn it into a book and you know do the whole professor thing. Uh, so I might be more easily findable that way. Oh, and I'm on the NFM NFNM website. Facebook. Yeah, the NFNM discussion group. Cool. So people can find you in there. Um, thank you so much for this discussion. This was an absolute adventure, and I hope people got something out of it. Um, uh, yeah, so thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you for listening to Faith and What Resonates. As I said in the interview, there's a playlist of the songs mentioned in the show notes, so you can check that out if you want that context. This is the last episode of this round of interviews. I'll be back on January 5th with my next episode. In the meantime, you can find previous episodes of this show as well as the other New Faith New Media shows in the New Faith New Media podcast feed. Speaking of which, Faith and What Resonates is part of New Faith New Media Network. You can discuss this and future episodes in our Facebook group. You can also support New Faith New Media on Patreon and get access to our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Blessed Lunatics. Links to all the places are in the show notes. We have plans to start a crowdfunding campaign for our website in the new year. It's super exciting, and we're hoping to have, uh, in addition to the normal website stuff, we're hoping to have our own discussion forum uh, so we can build community and get nerdy about theology in a place that is not Facebook. Uh, so stay tuned for how you can help out with that. Finally, if you want to learn more about the other things I do in the world, you can head to my website, gailgallaghermusic.com. Thank you for listening and remember to stay curious about the magic of the things that resonate. New faith, new media. Theology. Nerdery. Community.